the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Tired of the negative news and flashover substance? It's time for Today with Dr. Wendy. Dr. Wendy Patrick is a trial attorney, patriot, and PhD with a passion for people and a penchant for politics. Dr. Wendy brings you the headlines, streamlined news you can use. It's time to be informed, engaged, and entertained. Now, here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Good evening, and welcome to another edition of Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co-host Larry Dersham and I are delighted that you have decided to spend a bit of your Saturday evening with us. We always bring you a colorful cast of characters when it comes to very interesting, informative, and entertaining guests. And tonight is no exception. Larry, who do we have on the line? Spencer Clavin is a... Daily Wire podcaster. He's the son of another Daily Wire podcaster, Andrew Claven. And uh, Spencer is also a classicist with a PhD from Oxford and a profound understanding of the West and ancient Greek literature. His book that has just come out this month is called How to Save the West with the subtitle Ancient Wisdom for Five Modern Crises. It was just published on February 14th, and that's what we're going to be discussing tonight. So thank you for joining the program, Spencer. Oh, thank you for having me. It's really great to be here with you both. So, Spencer, it's interesting. Your book came out on Valentine's Day. I love that. you got to pick some holidays that that sort of have bipartisan appeal, if you will. (laughs) I think that's one of them. (laughs) You know, I understand you grew up around books. Now, those of us over uh, 40 or 50, whatever we want to admit, we remember books growing up. And we remember (laughs) the great classical works of Western literature. And I was just wondering, I mean, once I try to get over the intimidation factor of you having a Ph.D. from Oxford, what led you to write How to Save the West? Yeah, you know, it's true. I I did grow up around books, and I think I had to learn that that wasn't normal. I When I went out into the world, suddenly I discovered that everybody wasn't, you know, getting to live in this house surrounded uh, by old books. And that was really kind of sad to me because one thing I learned very quickly is being surrounded by books means being surrounded by friends. And that's been true for me since I was very little. I think, you know, in the world, a lot of times you'll hear, oh, Aristotle, Plato, the Bible, those guys are outdated. They're backward, maybe superstitious, maybe even, you know, racist and colonialist and what have you. And I just knew from my personal experience that none of that was true, that these were great minds that lived between these pages and could coach you on how to be excellent at being human. I I, I hardly knew what I would do without them. And that is the driving motivation behind my whole life and behind this book. I, I wrote this book because I wanted people to see what I saw and to have an inroad to this great tradition, especially 
in a time when it just feels like the news is incredibly disorienting and seems to deliver just disaster after disaster. Um, these things seem so unprecedented, a lot of the crises that we're up against. But if you peel back the layers, you'll actually find a lot of the questions we're facing are very ancient, have been around for a long time. And the great blessing of that is it actually means we're not alone. We have guidance from the past that we can draw on. Um, I wanted to offer people a little bit of that wisdom and to bring the fruits of my lifetime of scholarship to bear on the politics of the day to day. Wow, Spencer, in your new book, How to Save the West, you identify five crises that threaten to end Western culture. Could you summarize what those crises are? Absolutely. Yeah. Let me say, first of all, just a little bit about what I mean by the word crisis, because it's easy, I think, to have crisis fatigue. It seems like everything is a crisis. There's, you know, the supply chain crisis and the COVID crisis and you name it. That's um, true. <laughs> but right. I mean, it's like it's the it's the new trendy buzzword. You know, it's not it's, it's not cool if it's not a crisis anymore. But but actually, you know, what I mean is something a little bit different, um, something that underlies a lot of those news stories, because not that those things aren't serious problems and issues to think about. But the Greek word crisis, um, which is where we get our word, it comes from this, uh, this verb krino, which means I judge or even I decide. So a, a real crisis is a time for choosing. It's a, a choice between two irreconcilable ways of looking at the world, two different uh, worldviews or ways of proceeding. And that's what each of these five crises uh, is. Each one is a sort of underlying question that we're facing in a lot of our news stories. So the first one is the most basic one, and that is, is there such a thing as absolute truth, true or false? This is the reality crisis. Is it just your truth and my truth, or can we refer to some standard of, of absolute truth that's independent of any of our uh, judgments or desires? And then there's this, the crisis of the body, which is uh, kind of the flip side. It's, if there are absolute truths, if there's truth out there in the world, what do we make of our experience, human experience of living in sort of change and we break down and we die? And this is another old problem, the relationship between body and soul. and How can we reconcile that? Um, then I move on into these two related crises, the crisis of meaning and the crisis of religion. Um, I think it's very pervasive these days to hear that basically science has kind of rendered all of this talk outdated or obsolete. And all there is is just kind of material, physical processes. Um, and so that's one way of looking at the world. But I argue it's a way that doesn't actually work for us, that everybody's always doing some kind of worship in his heart. Um, and the better way forward is to kind of dig into the uh, texts of, of Jerusalem, especially the Greek and Roman scriptures, to understand what's worthy of worship. And then finally, at the very end, the crisis of the regime. This is the political one, because it's nice to, you know, step back and talk about these philosophical questions. But you ultimately have to say, what's going to happen to America? What do I do? Um, and that's the you know topic. That's the section of the book that's all about what's America supposed to be? And how can those of us that care about her um, rescue her or at least participate in a healthy version of American life. Um, and so that's where we end is with this uh, emphasis on kind of getting out into the community and, and acting on these great principles. Spencer, 
Arthur, I love that. You know, you have an amazing radio voice. It's almost oh. ironic that we're talking about what you wrote. <laughs> Thank you. It's the... When speaking, I hope you've. I hope you have an audio book. Oh my goodness, that's. Oh yes, it like. is on Audible. I should say, I did read the book on Audible, and I will say Good. also. Thank you because this is the only family heirloom that I have. Every that my grandfather was a radio announcer, and every man in my family has the same voice. So I'm very proud to. Carry <laughs> I, it I, I understand why. Hey, so th- that's a very interesting definition that you've described about crises and what they are, what they mean. How would you define a manufactured crisis? A manufacturer? That's an interesting question. I mean, I, I would say, I mean, so manufacturer, right, is a word that just means made by hand, literally. That's the etymology. Um, so it's a, yeah. it's a crisis that gets kind of confected out of uh, something that doesn't exist. And you have this kind of Rahm Emanuel quote, right? Um, you never let a crisis go to waste. Yes, I remember uh, that. You hear a lot in politics, especially during COVID, right? Um, so there is a kind of a politics of perpetual crisis that is very useful for certain people, certain interest groups. Um, if you can present everything as a kind of war as a kind of emergency. Um, the climate crisis is an emergency. Uh, the, you know, the war in Ukraine creates a global emergency. COVID is an emergency. Um, then you can make a moral claim to all sorts of exceptions. You can say, well, usually we have Republican government. Usually we elect our leaders. Usually we choose our, our way of life in this country. But unfortunately, now the bureaucrats have to step in and take control because it's a crisis, because it's an emergency. Um, so that's what I would call a manufactured crisis is the use of just events in history. Mm-hmm. Things are always happening. The world is very messy. Um, the, the use of those events as a kind of pretext for right. taking control from the people. And that's really not what I'm talking about when I talk about a crisis at all. A deep crisis or real crisis. The, it's is the opposite of now. what you're talking about. It's right, the opposite right. of what you're talking about. So that's a very good distinction. Right. Mm. Uh, Spencer, what are some of the practical steps that everyday people can take to deal with these crises that are so prevalent? So the, the short version, the soundbite version of this answer is log off and go to church. Nice. Um, and I'm going to, uh, you know, Amen. expound on Amen. that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, right. I mean, you know, <laughs> a lot of these questions that are up. Uh, that are up now that we're coming up against what's our place in the universe what's a human being what do we you know how do we relate to god and our neighbor um these are questions that are dredged up by this digital technology by the new forms that we have of interacting and i'm not uh, just a total pessimist about that stuff i mean here we are having this great conversation using digital technology so i don't want to say you know we need to put it all back in the box but what i do want to say is that the things that we do with our tech should grow out of this core of our humanity, our human embodiment as creations of God, embodied souls made in the image of God. Um, and we should relate to one another that way first and foremost. And that means political action in the community. One of the things I say is when you talk about the West, Western civilization, you're talking about something that it lives primarily in every human heart. Um, these are principles, ideals that you can think about by reading this book and then you can get up in the morning and you can enact them the way that you show up for your kids the way that you uh, vote in your local communities the way that you show up at your school board especially you know taking uh, a little bit of ownership over how kids are 
raised in your family and in your community. Yes. I mean, this is stuff that we're seeing people invest in a lot right now. I'm out here in Nashville. Um, it's a very, you know, it's very much a movement at the moment that people would take charge and, and interest in their kids' education. Um, I was just out in Florida where the same thing can be said. And part of what I want to say in this book is, you know, that is not just a kind of pastime or a political a moment of political fervor um that is the core of what we're called upon to do the greek concept is politike philia which is political love political friendship um and you can't do that online or in abstraction and you can't do it without a binding religious uh motivation impulse something that that binds the community together so log off and go to church we're we're at the end of our show i understand you have a podcast um and do you have a website as well I do, yes. Um, the best place to find me, actually, for my sins is on Twitter. That's at Spencer Clavin. Um, but there is a website for the Terrific. book, howtosavethewestbook.com. Nice. Thank you so much, and thank you for, uh, for joining us. And we want to thank our listeners for spending a bit of time with us this Saturday night. Don't go anywhere and don't touch that dial. We are coming right back for the other half of Today with Dr. Wendy. Back in a flash. News cycle lowlights have no place here. You're listening to the headline highlights on Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. It's time for more news you can use. The headlines streamline. It's time for more Today with Dr. Wendy. Now here's your host, Dr. Wendy Patrick. Welcome back to Today with Dr. Wendy. I'm Wendy Patrick, and my co-host Larry Dersham and I have an interesting second half for you tonight, because we are going to be talking about something that most people do frequently, that is eat out. And it doesn't matter if you're going to fast food or a fancy restaurant. It doesn't matter if you prefer Thai or Chinese or Mexican or whatever you enjoy. There is one thing that sometimes is an issue, and that is the presence of others who are loud, or let's just say louder than you are. Maybe you're not in the mood to be loud. We just got done with a a week where we celebrated Valentine's Day, and I can tell you, I know a lot of couples that selectively chose restaurants where they didn't expect there to be screaming children, running around, throwing things, whatever stereotype you want to assign to young people. And I also know families that enjoy a setting where you have lots of kids having fun being kids. We were all kids and we all behaved, well, most of us behaved accordingly. So there's a a restaurant in New Jersey that is really making waves and grabbing headlines because it has decided come the beginning of March to ban children under 10 from coming to the restaurant. It's called Nettie's House of Spaghetti. Larry, I'm going to kick it over to you to tell me what this is about, but if there were ever a family restaurant name, that's it. Yeah, I I love Italian food. It sounds like it's an Italian-type restaurant, and it's in Tintin Falls, New Jersey, and beginning after the winter break on March 8th, they're going to not allow kids under 10 to be there. And on a Facebook post, they said, we love kids. We really, truly do uh, Nettie's House of Spaghetti, uh, but they said that for various reasons they just had to make this decision, and it, some of it had to do with the noise levels. Uh, 
Also, lack of space for high chairs. Uh, crazy messes the kids live behind. <laughs> uh, <laughs> possible liability of children running around the restaurant. Uh, you know, you've got those waiters bringing out dishes or they're taking back dishes and you know if they get if they trip over a kid you know who's going to be liable there so the owners of netties decided to take control yeah so that's the status of it well a couple of really interesting talking points that i'm sure our our listeners will probably be able to relate to first of all larry i want to know what a crazy mess is now you with your grandkids maybe you know the answer to that question but here are the some of the bigger issues here so you might run you might waiter might run into a or a server might you know when you say trip over a kid how about tripping over a, a teenager who's texting or an adult for that matter and if you don't have space for high chairs do you have space for a wheelchair can you imagine where this would end if there's this allegation of, of discrimination against families with young kids for example and larry i have a really practical question for you how do you enforce this thing i'm not necessarily talking about well gosh do you have to bring your birth certificate what well, if somebody actually stand at the front door and sort of eye the, the people coming in trying to decide who does and doesn't look like they're under 10 are you allowed to ask I and mean, it's not like you're carding somebody to buy alcohol how do you even implement this kind of a change? Well, they might have to come up with a food bouncer, I guess, at the door. And, right. uh, you know, asking asking for ID, IDs. But uh, probably they'll just say, uh, you know, I, w- I would imagine if the kids are well-behaved, they'll maybe let it slide and just let them stay there. But uh, uh, I'll tell you what, we had an experience. Uh, this week it was my wife's birthday, and we went to a restaurant. I won't name the restaurant. Really nice. And there's these young couples were there and these people, these, these older couples and so forth. And we had, like, three of my grandkids, and they were behaved at first, but then they started to get a little bit rowdy, jumping out of their high chairs and running around and now nobody said a thing and i think the owner was really uh, you know he, he he was okay with that but my daughter felt guilty so she took the kids out to the car and basically kind of cut her meal short so i felt bad about that so it does happen i've witnessed it and uh, but yeah how do you enforce it there's a downside to this okay so everybody knows that you know there's cry rooms in church and you have activities for the kids there's adult only cruises i mean we know that those spaces exist uh, but you know don't people enjoy ordering off the kids menu to save a little bit of money don't people enjoy seeing young people when they maybe their kids are out of the house or empty nesters don't we all love kids, not just in the abstract, but in the here and now, in the immediate vicinity? You know, you, you talk about these books on etiquette assistance that they put out, and there's all this, these instructions for parents. You know, a, a couple of them actually make some sense. You know, they talk about if you want to take your children with you and you're going to an expensive restaurant for dinner— Think about when the child's bedtime normally is and then work backwards and decide to make a reservation at a time when you won't run into them being overtired. I mean, adults get overtired. It's not just kids that are poorly behaved, although they do get blamed for their share. And, you know, I I answered my own question about a crazy mess when I reminded myself that Nettie's is a house of spaghetti. Yeah. So there you go. Okay, so everybody is making a crazy mess. You certainly can't blame it on the kids. But one of the other issues that this really brings up is, is this a trend? Will this be some sort of a trend starter where you're going to have other restaurants that are going to decide that they're going to ban kids? And why 10? Do do we want to go younger than that? Do we want to say, okay, well, now it's like 16 and under? I mean, isn't that just the kind of slippery slope that we as lawyers abhor? The law hates a slippery slope because where does it end? 
oh yeah, yeah. I I, I think if, if I were a person and I was upset at a restaurant because they kicked me out because my kids were making noise, I think I would hire you, Wendy, because you have such great arguments uh, for that. But you're you're right, and it's, it's so interesting too that though some groups claim the policies violate their civil rights, none have brought a successful lawsuit for you know instances like this because there's many hotels and resorts that pro- uh, prohibit minors from staying at their establishment you could go on and on uh, but it, it's it's really and, and as far as like is this going to be a trend will this increase it may but then i would say uh, there's a lot of restaurants unfortunately closing down uh, post pandemic and i'm so sad to see it happen so i'm thinking yeah i'm you thinking know, Larry, that is probably one of the biggest practical impediments to establishing a rule like this. Many restaurants are just coming back into business, and they're certainly not going to lose a large portion of their clientele. Probably the majority, when you got a name like Nettie's, I mean, that sounds like a family restaurant. You talk about spaghetti, oh my goodness, you got to bring the kids. You got to bring a neighbor's kid if you're going to go get spaghetti. So that, you want to make a crazy mess as a family at a spaghetti restaurant. So that's another practical aspect of why perhaps rules like this won't catch fire. But Larry, what about that discrimination aspect? I mean, what's next? Uh, adults over 80? I mean, that means I can't bring my mother anymore. Plus, I mean, her wheelchair is, is takes up more space than the high chair. And if you can't fit a high chair, how are you going to fit a wheelchair? You can just see how that, that aspect, the potential for discriminatory litigation surrounding ideas like this might be problematic. But again, You'd want to distinguish them from all of the other adult-only rules that are out there. But, Larry, you know, we're going to save all this for another day because I guarantee you when they try to implement this rule, they're going to give us something more to talk about. But you've got something else on your docket this evening. Right. Yeah, I call this segment Who's Who. And uh, you, we've, we've already heard of that all heard that book called Who's Who, where they have important people listed. But this is a little bit different. I'm talking about the World Health Organization. Now, Ronald Reagan said, freedom is never more than one generation away from extinction. We didn't pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on for them to do the same. So why am I, why am I saying this? Well, if an unelected body of bureaucrats in Geneva, Switzerland, get their way, the United States could lose its sovereignty. Yeah. You heard that right, folks. The Biden administration is preparing to sign away U.S. sovereignty uh, as as uh, related to health issues on February 27th. you know, this month. And we, we have to stop that uh, right right now, this this effort. And behind that effort is the, uh, of course, the World Economic Forum, the United Nations, and so forth. The World Health Organization started uh, in April of 1948 as part of the United uh, Nations. So the World Health Organization is, basically, they're just advisory. They say, well, if a country is suffering a pandemic, they say, oh, you know, you better do this, you better do that but and the country was totally free to do that but the biden administration they're going to be signing on to this uh, agreement that uh it would bypass the u.s constitution it would bypass the senate uh the congress basically and it would allow this this uh general this uh head of the who to basically declare when there is a a, a worldwide epidemic and he could basically declare a lockdown and if this goes through 
theoretically, we would be beholden to obey those things. If they say you have to get this vaccination, it would be the who that would be dictating that. And it wouldn't be something that we could appeal to uh, our courts. And so this is so uh, very serious, folks. So here's some action items. There is something called H.R. 70. Nine. This in Congress is the Who Withdraw Act, where we're going to withdraw. And this was just introduced by Representative Andy Biggs uh, in January of this year to make sure that sovereignty of the United States is not negotiable. Also, Senator Ron Johnson, uh, Wisconsin senator, uh, he's, a, he's a U.S. senator, but he's from Wisconsin. He's introduced uh, just uh, this month as well. It's called No Who Pandemic Preparedness Treaty Without Senate Approval Act. We must contact our representatives. We must do that. Uh, it's so important. This sounds like it's not important. It's like international. It's way over in Switzerland. But we have people, the Biden administration, Administration, and this is this is a little bit of my opinion. I think behind this is the World Health, um, is the World Economic Forum, and basically the leftists in America that are trying to do away with our sovereignty is so we important. We are at the very end of the show. I know this is obviously something you're very passionate about, and it sounds like something that we'll be revisiting in upcoming weeks because this is these types of issues are here to stay, Larry. So thank you for bringing all of that up. And thank you to our listeners. Have a wonderful, safe weekend. Please join us next week for more of Today with Dr. Wendy. Headlines with a silver lining. Have a great week and God bless you. Thank you for joining us for Today with Dr. Wendy. You can learn more about Dr. Wendy and how to become a guest or sponsor of the show by visiting wendypatrickphd.com. That's wendypatrickphd.com. Tune in every week at this same time as Dr. Wendy will engage and inspire you with an upbeat viewpoint on the highlights of the day. This has been Today with Dr. Wendy on The Answer San Diego. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.